All right, grab your Bible. I find Luke chapter 14. Words of deep, deep meaning from the Lord Jesus here. We've got verses 25 through 35. Again, Luke 14. Um, If you're able to stand this morning for the reading of the word, it's something we do at Prairie Hill in honor of the Lord. So I invite you to do that. This is what we find. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear. Let him hear. Father, awaken in us a desire for Jesus that has not been there before. Awaken in us a desire to follow a narrow and difficult path. Awaken in us a desire to do something hard because Jesus is there and he calls us forward. We ask that you would awaken in us true Christianity. We ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Please please be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, brother. Large crowds are following Jesus, and he turns to them, and he makes a suggestion. All these people following him and he turns to them and he makes a suggestion and it's a suggestion that we never make. We never say this to people who are considering becoming a Christian. He suggests that before they decide to continue on with him that they should count the cost. His suggestion is that they take time to deliberate. Sit down. Carefully calculate what it will mean to follow him and decide if it's something that they can commit to. Now, we never do that. If we think someone is near to making a decision for Jesus, we We clear the runway. We take away every obstacle. We are so excited to push them through that door. 
We expedite the process. We, we get them saved and then we send them off with lots of words of blessing and no words of warning. And all we're doing, this very first thing, is just noticing Jesus seems to do the opposite. And so the question that we have to put before ourselves is, how come this huge difference between what we do and what Jesus does? He encourages them to stop and think about it. Why are we so different? Well, I don't think it's hard to see why there's this huge discrepancy between the way we like to do things and the way that Jesus does things. I think there's at least three reasons that are pretty opposite why we tend to rush people in to a commitment to Christ instead of telling them to tap the brakes. The first reason that we are so different from Jesus is that we're very results-driven. When we get a, uh, an update letter, newsletter, update letter, whatever, from a supported missionary, you think about what you get in the mail, what you get in your email, we like to see numbers, don't we? Well, just how many disciples do you have? How many commitments have you had? How many churches have you planted? And lots of times, numbers are tied to funding, aren't they? And if you don't have any numbers, well, what am I giving you, what am I giving you money for? Where's the results in this ministry? So we, we carry this pressure of performance as measured by number of Christians, number of churches, number of commitments. And if someone's not getting results, we ask the question, well, what's wrong with them? Maybe they should come home from the field. Maybe they're lazy. Maybe they're not doing their job. So if you're in that position and you're seeking disciples and you're preaching and you're working on behalf of Jesus to bring people into his kingdom and someone's expressing interest, finally, someone is interested and eager to follow Jesus. About the last thing that we're gonna say is, wait a minute, are you sure? Like, you should go home and think about this. Because what if in the interim they decide, no, I really don't wanna do this. Well, then you've lost them. Jesus doesn't seem to carry those fears. He doesn't seem to be afraid of suggesting these illustrations that he uses, these two things about building the tower and the king going to war. He doesn't seem to be afraid of suggesting that people who are interested in following him sit down. That phrase is there twice, verse 28 and verse 31. Go sit down. Think about it. And that takes time. And I think if we're honest, we're, we're afraid of giving people time. And what if they die in the interim? Or what if they decide not to, not to follow Jesus? We're just noticing Jesus doesn't seem to have that fear. He's not results-driven. Jesus is not results-driven. Jesus is father-driven. Everything he does is driven by his relationship to the Father, his desire to obey the Father. He's Father-driven. Doing the will of the Father. We never suggest that people think twice about following Jesus because we want the result. We want to capture that firefly while it's floating by. Just grab it. 
Jesus is willing to give time, suggest careful thought. I think another reason that we never make this suggestion to people is that we're data-driven. Yeah, we're results-driven and we're data-driven. We're driven to get results. We're also driven by data. And the data says that the vast majority of Christians come to know Christ as a child or as a youth while they're young. That's what the data says. And one, one effect that that data can have on us is that we can carry the mindset that if we don't get them now, then we lose them forever. Therefore, the urgency to get someone while they're young. Well, what if we get them now only to lose them later because there was no sober reflection encouraged on the front end? In our way of doing things where we never suggest careful deliberation, is that way of doing things really better than Jesus' way? Just think about the theology of salvation for a moment. When God regenerates someone's heart, that that is, when God brings someone from spiritual death to spiritual life, that's a miracle every time. It's always a miracle, whether someone is seven or 87. It's not harder for God to save someone who's old than to save someone who's young. It's always a miracle. And I'd say in addition to that theological reflection on salvation, we could add to the fact that Paul didn't seem to prioritize speaking to young people. He didn't seem to prioritize his speaking based on how old his listeners are. He seemed to prioritize his speaking to people based on them being in the city and the Jewish people. He wanted to go to the synagogue to find the Jews. He wanted to go to the major cities where all the people were. Those are things that don't have anything to do with age. We're typically results-driven and we're data-driven. We don't see any of those dynamics in the lives of Jesus or the apostles. We see a kind of resting in the sovereignty of God. A resting that's willing to grant people time to sit down and suggest that they think very carefully about their decision, knowing that everything is in God's hands. If we named a third reason why we never suggest counting the costs, I think it's that we just don't like uncertainty. It's like the stock market, right? That's the one thing that the market can't handle is uncertainty. And that's the one thing that we don't want to live with. What we want to know is we want to know who's in and who's out, right? We want to know for sure who's in, who's out. And we'd like to know sooner rather than later. So when someone's acting like they want to follow Jesus, we don't send them home to think about it, talk to them about how hard it's going to be and ask them, are you sure? Because what if we never see them again? What if they decide no? What if they want to think about it for a long time? 
We're just really not comfortable with any kind of delay or uncertainty. If you are a parent of a young child or a student, could you ever see yourself saying to your child, think very carefully before you decide to follow Jesus? If they came to you and said, I want to believe in Jesus, I want to be baptized, I want to start following him, could you see yourself ever saying, you know, you might want to think about that for a while. That's going to be really hard. Are you sure? As far as I can remember, as far as I know, I have never been encouraged or cautioned to stop and think about the decision to follow Jesus. I don't remember anyone ever saying that to me. Has that ever been suggested to you? We almost never make that suggestion to each other, to our students, to our children. Jesus makes that suggestion here. And on the basis of his suggestion, I suggest to you, graduates, other students, adults, small children, everyone in the room listening, everyone listening online, young and old, maybe for the first time ever, that you sit down and think very, very carefully about the decision to follow in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know where he's headed here in this account? It doesn't tell us. We have to read the surrounding context to know. We, we see that the crowds are accompanying him, but where's he going? He's making his way very slowly through the towns and the villages on his way to Jerusalem to die. He is on a very long death march. There's a, a Roman cross waiting for him at the end of this road. There's going to be betrayal and humiliation and pain, actual physical pain. And Jesus will later tell his disciples, look, a servant is not above his master. Right? A servant, the servants, that's us, the master, that's him. A servant is not above his master. If they treated me this way, they will certainly treat you this way. We try to make entering Christianity as easy as possible. Jesus makes entering Christianity as real as possible. He gives us three real costs of following him. Let's notice what they are pretty quickly, all right? He does tell us what those costs are. He he gives color to what it's like. He doesn't just say it's hard. He, he tells us actually what's required. So deliberate on these things, these things specifically. When he's cautioning us to sit down and think about it, this is what he wants us to think about. If we wanted to summarize his three 
costs in a way that we could remember it easily, we could do it this way. Um, They all start with the letter A. Allegiance, alignment, and abandonment. Those are the costs. Allegiance, alignment, and abandonment. First of all, allegiance. Your primary allegiance must be to Jesus Christ. That's verse 26. Your primary allegiance must be to Jesus Christ. How primary is this allegiance to be? How strong? Well, by comparison, your allegiance to mother and father, brothers and sisters, wife and children, by comparison, your allegiance to those close family members will appear to be hatred. By comparison to your allegiance to Jesus Christ. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? It's actually much worse than that. Whoever does not hate, yes, even his own life. So it's not only those relationships are counted as hatred in comparison to Jesus Christ, your own life. There's only one allegiance in the Christian life. One. And it's not family. And it's not country. And it's not your people group. And it's not the community that you identify with, that you share values with, or share a lifestyle with. Those things pull at us for allegiance. In fact, it's not even allegiance to yourself. It's not even allegiance that you be true to who you really are. It's an allegiance to Jesus. He's 1A, and there is no 1B. There's not even 2, 3, 4, or 5. It's Jesus. And the use of the word hate here serves to show us how wide the gap is between our allegiance to him and every other idea or people or place. Now, Are you willing to make that commitment? What if following Jesus makes it look like you don't love your family or your country or your people group or the community that you identify with? Because all of those entities, all of those groups want you to love them and want you to show and demonstrate your allegiance to them. And when you don't, and when you don't do it in the way that they want to see it from you, you will be hated. Not only that, you will be counted a threat to that group. See, that happened to Paul. Paul standing before his countrymen, his own people, in Acts giving his testimony. They want to see something from him, demonstrate that he's a real Hebrew. And he's showing he's not one of them anymore because he believes in this Jesus. And they're flinging dust in the air away with this man's life. He doesn't deserve to live. See, that's what happens. Paul still loved his country. It's just that Jesus had his allegiance. People don't like it. Why is the Christian life like that? Why this incredible allegiance to just this 
one person. Why is that what Christianity is like? Because that's what Jesus' life was like. One allegiance to the Father, that's it. That's why the Christian life is like that, with a singular allegiance. It's called Christianity, not Mattianity, or Danianity, or Deborahianity. Christianity, Christ. Our allegiance is to him, not ourselves, anything else. Second cost, alignment. This is verse 27 regarding bearing the cross, this famous verse about bearing your own cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, the first one, allegiance. A little, a, little bit, a little bit hard to understand. Allegiance lives up here. Allegiance lives in, in the heart. Allegiance is a little bit hard to get a handle on. Alignment is utterly practical. This is the real blood and guts cost of being a Christian. Alignment means painful obedience. It means that our following is hard. We want Christianity to be like a stroll. We want to stroll alongside Christ, hearing him approve of every personal desire that we have. We want to hear him offer his acceptance of our theories about God and standards for living. And that's exactly the opposite. Christ does not align with us. We don't bring him into alignment with what we want Christianity to be. We align with him. We conform. We change. We get into alignment with him. We take up something new, the cross. We take up something and and bear it. And that's costly. You will feel in real time the cost of bringing your life into alignment with Jesus. Allegiance, that first cost, risks the hatred of others. Alignment, this second cost, risks denial of self. Means we don't get to do what we want to do. I'll say it again. It means we don't get to do what we want to do. Before you decide to follow Jesus, sit down and consider this. Do you really want to fight? Do you really want to fight for holiness and purity for the rest of your life? Do you want to engage in that fight? Do you want to engage in that brutal war against Satan? Is that something that you want to do? Fight? Would it be easier to just give in, let it go? swim in the stream. Think about this. Do you really want to forgive people for horrible offenses against you? I talked to a friend this week. This person heard these words come out of their mouth. I'm never forgiving them for what they did to me. Following Jesus says, yes, you will. Do you really want to show love to your enemies? Do you you really want to 
people that mistreat you, do you really want to treat them well? Do you really want to become a servant of everybody instead of being served? Do you, want to, do you really want to take that low position? Do you really want to set your hopes on the glories of a, a future kingdom instead of getting everything that you can now? Don't you want to be a get-everything-that-I-can-now kind of person? Do you really want to be regarded as a sheep headed for the slaughter? Is that something you want to be true of your life? Romans 8, Paul writing, we are regarded as sheep headed for the slaughter. Jesus says we have to, bury, or to bear a cross. Wouldn't you rather hold uh, like a scepter or wouldn't you rather hold a weapon, you know, something that can coerce other people, make them do what you want them to do? Wouldn't you rather hold something that can manipulate others instead of bearing something that can actually kill you? Before you say that you want to follow Jesus Christ, count the cost. Here's the last one. Count this cost also abandonment. That's verse 33. So we have allegiance. We have abandonment. There's allegiance. There's alignment. There's abandonment. This last cost, um, abandonment, is really the simplest of the three. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What's included here in this everything, this all that he has, what does that mean? I think the best way to get a handle on what Jesus means is to look at what Jesus did to look at his own life. What did he set aside? What did he renounce in order to come and live among us and give his life away? He set aside, he renounced all privilege and status and conceptions of fairness. We're thinking about all the things that were true of him because he is God, because he is fully God. All that he renounced He renounced the approval of man. He set aside all of his rights as God. He renounced them all to come and live with us in the flesh and give his life away for us. They were all his by right. He had the right to all of those things. But he renounced them. He didn't cling to them. He didn't talk about how hard it was to go without them or how bad it felt to not have all these things. He simply renounced them and treated them as nothing for the sake of the joy that was set before him in obedience to the Father. So that's our pattern. We have all these things that we think we deserve. We just cling to them and treasure them in our hearts, these rights and privileges, and I need to be treated this way. You should, you should see me when I go into a store or eat at a restaurant and I don't feel like I'm being treated the right way. What are you like when that happens? How do you respond? Probably better than me. We just have this strong ideal and desire to be treated in accordance with our view of ourselves, and Christ renounced all of this rubbish and said, I've come to lay down my life for the sheep. So here's the question. Can you treat your rights and privileges with that kind of disdain?
Are you ready to follow Jesus? Can you live with that kind of abandon? I suggest that you think about it very carefully. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you boil this whole passage down to the minimum, this whole word of warning, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, don't you know that if you choose to follow me, all you get is me? That's what you need to know. That's what you need to know. And that's what I need to know. If you choose to follow Jesus, Jesus is all you're promised. Only him. That's it. That's what it means to renounce everything you have and be okay abandoning all your privileges and rights and whatever else you want to talk about. You get Jesus. And what you have to decide is, is that enough for you? Jesus Christ is so great a treasure, we should not desire or expect anything else. Only him. And if you don't think that's true, It just means we don't know him well enough yet. Because it is true. Because this is the one of whom Paul wrote, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the treasure. The cost of following him is everything. The reward is infinite you get the person of Jesus Christ. Let's say something in conclusion. Jesus gives a conclusion to his statement. Verses 34 and 35, the salt part. You know, the part that doesn't seem to go with the rest of it. His conclusion is basically this. If you don't, if you don't do these things, you know, all this sacrificial stuff we've been talking about. If you, don't, if you don't follow me in that way, if you don't give me your primary allegiance, if you're not worried about taking up your cross, bringing your life into alignment with Jesus Christ, if you're not up for renouncing everything that you have, if you don't do these things, you can be a believer, but you cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus doesn't say here that if you don't bear your own cross, you cannot be saved. He says you cannot be my disciple. Three times. Cannot be my disciple. Meaning you can't learn anything from me. You you can't look like me. You can't grow in me. You can't produce any fruit like me. What's your condition like? Well, your condition is like salt that's lost its saltiness. It's still salt, but there's nothing distinct about it anymore. There's no, there's no use for it anymore. 
That happens to many Christians. They've lost or they've never had what makes a Christian distinctive. What makes us distinctive? Allegiance to Jesus. Alignment with Jesus. Abandonment for Jesus. So the great threat here for those that don't follow this costly, costly path of discipleship, the great threat is not hell. Hell is not being warned against. What is being warned against is uselessness, wasting your life. Like salt without saltiness is a believer who doesn't follow the way of Jesus. And of that life, Jesus says, it is of no use It is thrown away. I don't know about you. That's not what I want to be true of my life. I suggest that you think very carefully about this Jesus whom you've been hearing of for so many years. That you understand where he's headed, what life will be like with him, and decide what you want to do. So you've come to a crossroads. On your left is the world with all of its amenities and wonders. And on your right is Jesus, just him. And the chance to be his disciple. What are you gonna do? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would call to hearts in this quiet moment I ask that while we're we're letting the weight of these words of Jesus sink in to our ears into our hearts that instead of sending people away, which would be the natural thing to happen when we hear about how hard it is, I ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, instead of sending people away, there would be people listening right now who would be so drawn and so in love with this Savior. not just in spite of the fact that things are hard with him, but because things are hard with him. That you would draw those whom you will and set hearts on fire to attach themselves to the beauty in the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing in advance, this is gonna be brutal. This is going to be hard. But it's Jesus. And what else can I do? And where else can I go? And then give us the grace and the help to just walk with him. And we need each other so much. We know that that's one of the reasons why the church is here. Because this life is difficult. And we need each other. 
to encourage each other on this walk, for people to know that they're not alone as they seek to offer up a difficult allegiance and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, call forward all whom you will to the path of Jesus. Amen.